and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 18th, the films of Larry Cohen. So yeah, going from Wes Craven, one of the most famous horror directors, to Larry Cohen, one that I don't think I've heard a lot of other people talk about, at least not at least not personally. Uh, yeah, I actually stumbled on uh, Larry Cohen's movies completely by accident. I picked up the uh, Arrow video copy of uh, The Stuff from my local Bull Moose store a couple of years back during lockdown. Or, you know, not at the store, but you know what I mean. It was still during lockdown, but I was curious about it. I picked it up. I decided I'd look a, out for more of this guy's stuff, and it's it's really good. Uh, his movies are obviously low budget. They're a little weird, but, you know, they do all have that indie film spirit to it. Uh, we're going to talk about six movies in total today. I'm going to talk about the... One of them's a... Tr- half of them's a trilogy, so I'm just going to go through those relatively quickly. Uh, I'm going to start with It's Alive, which is one of his more famous ones. Uh, basically, there's a couple looking forward to the birth of their second child. Uh, the only catch is that it's revealed the mother is taking this sort of experimental medicine. And what happens is that her child comes out very strong and very heavily deformed to the point where the staff in the delivery room actually try to kill it, but it, you know, it defends itself and it kills the entire staff in the delivery room, which should give you some ideas just how mutated it is. But the conflict from here on out is that the, you know, corporate guys uh, and the local law enforcement, you know, they just want this thing dead. The police, because it's a public safety hazard, the corporate guys because it would be rather embarrassing and lead to the possibility of information getting out. Uh, the father of the child is more just trying to cooperate with them and kill this thing more out of rage and grief because of the trauma of coming in and finding his you know wife like that. But the the mother and then later the uh, mutant kid's older brother, both try and shield him, which, uh, you know, spoiler, doesn't go well for anyone involved. But, you know, it it establishes early on that it's going to be something to do with that because you have, you know, the father talking in the sort of, like, hospital uh, cafe area with, like, three other guys there, and they're talking about how polluted the valley is. So that, on top of the experimental medicine, talking about the deformities. Uh, I'm not going to give exactly away what happens at the end, but leading into the sequel, came about four years later, um, we pick up with the father from the first film. He's our focus character now again. And he's going around with this group of, a sort of underground group of scientists, and what they're trying to do is actually understand the mutations rather than just killing the children outright. And, you know, they're obtaining information taken by 
the company uh, doing blood work to try and find commonalities to predict these things happening. And he's going around and he's trying to help the would-be parents that are possibly going to have similar experiences. Again, there's the added complication that the company and the government are both trying to cover up the mutations by, you know, as I said, trying to predict which children are going to be born with these mutations and then dispose of them as quietly as possible and then just play the whole thing off as like a stillbirth. Um, I'm going to say the uh, production quality for the first two is pretty consistent. The puppetry work is really, really good. Puppetry, animatronics, whichever one it was. Um, you know, obviously it's not seamless, but you can definitely tell they did everything in their power to like hide the like flaws in the design. But it, it looks freaky. Like most of them look like just a regular baby, but just like slightly off. They've got like bulging heads. They've got like, you know, razor teeth basically. They look really freaky, but they don't seem like silly when you see them in direct lighting. And then sort of a departure from the first two because it doesn't have the same characters. We have It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive. Sort of a Dr. Moreau-esque sequel. Several years after the events of the first two films, and there's this father in court who's trying to argue for his son, who is you know, very, very... He's one of the deformed children. And the compromise is leveled where there's basically this old island where instead of killing the mutant children, they would be left alone, but they'd be left alone in a place where they'd be unlikely to hurt other human beings and where they could be you know, studied without risk to the general public. And it's not like this is just abandoning them. They're pretty strong to begin with, even when they're basically infants, so it doesn't hurt them that much. In fact, they're doing fine when we cut later. The character Jarvis, uh, played by... played by an actor named... Um, Michael... Michael Moriarty. He's a regular in uh, Larry Cohen's films. He, impressively enough, he got an Emmy Award and a Golden Globe for his first acting role, which was playing an SS officer in the miniseries Holocaust. He was also in the movies, uh, you know, Pale Rider and Shiloh and A Return to Salem's Lot and bang the drum slowly. But he was a regular of uh, Larry Cohen's films. He's actually in uh, two of the other ones we're going to be talking about. But his character Jarvis, who's played kind of high-strung, kind of neurotic, bit of a man-child, honestly, but you know he's got a good heart. And he becomes a bit of a social pariah for trying to protect his son. And... He loses a lot of his like acting sponsorships. A lot of people, he has trouble finding. He has trouble finding a date because a lot of women are concerned that, you know, if he accidentally knocks them up, you know, there's going to be an issue. With the well, there's going to be an issue with the issue, <laughs> but 
you know, just the general idea that, you know, it's almost like they're worried that the con- the deformities are catching, basically, even though this is entirely because of a drug, not because of family history. And the company at fault in this case is trying to, like, kill the children so they can sweep the drugs issue under the rug and just slap on a new na- new label instead of trying to, like, fix the problems with it. Yeah, overall, even with this sort of disjointed nature, it's a fairly good trilogy. Um, good, decent gore effects for the age and the budgets. Um, story, well, kind of silly, has a good balance of, like, seriousness, but also humorous moments. Um, and obviously, again, like with what I said yesterday, there's a bit of uh, social satire kind of reflective of the age that these things were made where there was a lot of concern about pollution and the effects that it had on both the environment as a whole and people. But, you know, it's not the best, but I've certainly seen a lot worse. They're worth a watch. You can find them all on Vudu for a couple bucks each. Uh, moving on to my... One of my two favorite on the list here, though, and the only one I actually own is The Stuff. Now, it's a little sci-fi horror, uh, doubling as satire. I think Cohen has said that it kind of hurt the box office performance, that the company marketed it more as a straight horror film. And we open with the scene of a bunch of quarry workers in Georgia. Inside, they find this viscous white gel that they later find out is edible. And it gets sold as stuff like that's just the brand name because they don't really know how to classify it and you know it's like this gooey sort of like marshmallowy filling it's marketed as a sort of healthy alternative to ice cream because it has a similar taste but it's got like no calories in it becomes a nationwide craze and drastically hurts the sales of ice cream so this guy uh mo rutherford who again is a played by Moriarty. He, he, he's a former FBI agent and he's now sort of hired gun industrial espionage. So the ice cream sort of like trade industry, sort of like industry trade group for ice cream. They hire him to go sneak in and basically steal the recipe try to figure out what it is that makes the stuff so good. And eventually his path intersects with this kid named Jason. And Jason, alone amongst his whole family, does not eat the stuff. And the whole the whole plot of this movie, they find out later that the stuff is a living organism that takes over the minds of its consumers. Yeah, it, it, it's like this weird mix of The Blob and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, only that's basically off-brand yogurt. <laughs> that's the big threat here. It's it's a bizarre way to explain the plot, but that's basically it. And, you know, again, uh, relatively low-budget kind of horror film from the 80s. The effects are not the best by modern standards, but... They hold up very, very well, I would still argue. 
And I think this actually came out the same year as uh, another horror comedy, as it were, Reanimator. So, you know, like I said, this one's on Arrow Video. I'm pretty sure it's on Shutter. And as far as like monster movies go, we've got one more, and then we get to kind of the weirdest entry on this list. We have Q, sometimes called Q the Winged Serpent. There's this sort of, like, cult in New York City uh, that's sort of like a bastardized revivalist Aztec group. And they commit these sort of, like, sacrificial... They commit these sacrificial killings. Um, and what ends up happening is that they sort of summon... It's not really a winged serpent. It just has... It's basically just a weird-looking dragon, but that's still what they call it. And it takes up roost in the Chrysler building in New York City. Now, the two main plot points around here are uh, Quinn, a sort of paranoid crook who's played by Michael Moriarty again, and he accidentally stumbles on the creature's lair and decides to extort the city for money by uh, revealing the location as well as getting some immunity for, like, outstanding charges. Uh, and we've also got our main detectives, uh, played by Richard Roundtree, you know, the original Shaft, and David Carradine. Uh, you know, Bill from Kill Bill. It's been a bunch of other stuff, but, you know. Uh, I, I mostly remember him because a friend of mine was teaching film studies as an elective, and I kid you not, they he's she stopped showing Kill Bill because people would always just keep making autoerotic asphyxiation jokes whenever David Carradine was on screen. Yeah, I I feel bad for the guy. He's a he was a great actor, but it's gotta suck having that as your cause of death because it's all anyone's gonna remember at that point. But yeah. It, avoiding avoiding that. It's really impressive given the budget was only about a million dollars and it was a stop-motion creature, which I don't normally like too much, but it's integrated very well. Obviously, there's problems with, like, the scale of it because, you know, supposedly it's, like, it's supposed to be small enough that it could fit into the, like, uppermost part of the Chrysler building and not be terribly visible out in direct sunlight, but at the same time, it's also large enough that it can, like, scoop a grown man up in one of its claws. I don't know. It, it's got the same problem that a lot of, like, fantasy and sci-fi does. There's, like, no sense of real scale. But it's got enough to keep you entertained. It's very well-paced. It's a mix of, like, a crime thriller and a horror movie, basically. All right, and finally, we have God Told Me To, which I'm pretty sure is available on Shudder and is going to be added to the Criterion at some point, or it's on already. I'm not entirely sure. But an NYC, a New York City detective is investigating a number of rash, random acts of violence. A quiet student takes a rifle, climbs up a water tower, and just starts shooting random people. From seemingly impossible distances for someone who doesn't have any sort of military training. 
family man just guns down his family. Another takes up a knife and just attacks people in a supermarket. There's an officer who's marching in the St. Patrick's Day parade and just starts shooting into the crowd. And in all cases, they seem to lack any obvious motive. And when asked, all gave the same answer. God told me to. There's some, like, shadowy group that's involved with this, and it's being directed by this mysterious figure that we don't see for most of the movie until the very, very end, although we get clues to the appearance. It's a wonderful blend of crime drama, mystery, fantasy, and sci-fi, and the detective involved slowly begins to realize that he has a rather like personal connection to this figure. It's really well thought out, and if you can you know, enjoy a slower burn investigation... It's, I I would honestly seriously recommend this, even if it's not your usual cup of tea, honestly. Because it's also got some underlying themes about, you know, faith and religion and how, you know, the public deals with stuff that both scientific community and, you know, government authorities can't really give a decent explanation for. So, you know, it's one of those ones where there's at least an attempt at some sort of like commentary on the real world that kind of sets it above just, you know, being, it's perfectly fine for a film to just be completely on surface level enjoyable, but, you know, it's always nice when it can manage that and have a little bit of depth to it. All right, so that is it for Larry Cohen's movies. I hope you will give him a watch at some point. Like I said, I definitely recommend the stuff in God Told Me To especially. But all of these are definitely worth a watch. Tomorrow we're going to be doing another sampler episode with the uh, second of our Weird Wednesdays. Uh, after that, we are going to be touching on little collaboration put together so many years ago by Mick Garris, the Masters of Horror series. Until then, stay safe, have a good night. I'm signing off. Good night.